welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Cooley and Silicon Valley Bank. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at cooleygo.com. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. David Tisch is a managing partner and co-founder of Box Group. He's also the co-founder and chairman of Spring here in New York City and a professor and head of the startup studio at Cornell Tech. He previously co-founded Techstars New York, and he's been a fixture of the New York City startup ecosystem for the past decade. Mr. Tish, what up, David Tish? Hey, Nick. How are you? What's Thanks going on? Thanks for having on? me. Um, we just had a long dialogue about uh, good VCs, bad VCs, good VC behavior, bad VC behavior, which I think we should actually get back to at some point. Um, but uh, I first met you at the very, very, very beginning of when you were starting Techstars. I applied to the program. Um, I didn't get in. Uh, you were close. I was, uh, whatever. Um, could you tell us a little bit about... Uh, just getting into the New York tech community and um, a little bit about what led you ultimately to join and and start Techstars here in New York. Yeah, it was it was like everything sort of happens accidentally in great timing. Um, I years years earlier, I graduated law school and spent a year uh, working at Vornado, a big public real estate company, doing M and A, and I left there in two thousand seven to start uh, a tech company, and I had basically. Uh, become casually obsessed with tech startups right. and taught myself how to code uh, at nights and weekends so that I could leave a real job to start <laughs> right. something. And right. um, so I spent a year trying to build my own business, failed. This was like 07, 07 08, something like that. Yes, yeah. and yeah. Uh, failed and sold myself by sort of packaging myself up as a uh, modern thinking understand technology, understand where the world's going to this company called KGB, where I spent two years running their internet division, which is always a an interesting sign what when you have an it, internet what division. Was KGB is, KGB like is a, a information services company. Um, they consulting firm? No, no, no. Okay. They answered your phone call if okay. you called 411. They were incredible oh, okay. Okay. Uh, information services business, uh, 13,000 employees. But I was running this sort of R&D labs for them. And we got to really hire some amazing uh, technical talent, uh, many of them which are VC-backed founders now. And uh, in 2007 to nine, uh, we were cash rich 
and the world was cash poor. So we were able to hire incredible talent in New York at the time. And we felt like we were building a startup within this big company and doing it on an island. There wasn't a community. There wasn't a network of other startups we were accessing. So we were figuring out everything on our own. And when I left KGB in 09, YC had just started. And I had sort of been inspired by that idea of, of being around other people learning. And I said, why isn't this in New York? And I spent sort of my post-KGB um, depression studying what YC and then Techstars had put online and became right. relatively obsessed with this accelerator model where right. startups are doing it together. There was learning sort of in a community and support and things like that. And I, I backburnered it and I started working on a new idea, but I went up to this random conference through one of my KGB employees said, hey, my friend's putting on this conference. Boston, you should go. Like, okay, you make angel investments, right? I'm like, yeah, I've done a couple. Right. So at that time, I'd done about four investments, five maybe. Um, and it was called Angel Bootcamp. And I went as an attendee uh, and just listened to a bunch of really smart people uh, talk about angel investing and seed investing. And, in Boston. Um, in Boston. Yeah. It was my first time. I was I, there. Um, it's where I met like Finn Barnes from First okay. Round, um, Lee Howarth, who's now yeah. at NextView and... Um, there were there was it was a lot of Boston people, but okay. uh, I think Eric Paley from Founder Collective was was speaking, mm-hmm. and uh, I was just listening. And I was at one of the breaks. I saw uh, a guy with a badge that said David Cohen Techstars walking around, and I said, I know that guy from the internet. And I just walked up to him and I said, wow. Why aren't you in New York? And uh, six weeks later, after an intense amount of uh, conversations and a couple trips to Boulder, um, I agreed to to join and launch Techstars in New York because uh, it made sense. The New York community needed, um, yeah. to me, uh, a path into this industry. It was it was bubbling. It wasn't new. Yeah. It was bubbling. There was a yeah. lot of good activity, but there wasn't a a natural path in, and it made sense that an accelerator model was a really powerful way to do it. And Techstars model was the right one to coalesce a community because of the mentorship. And so we were able to, and and I did it, I didn't really have a network. And I, I one by one pieced together this mentorship group by saying, you know, to the people I knew, okay, awesome, you're in. And then do you know anybody else that can loop in? And we built a, a pretty amazing group of, of initial mentors and launched the program. And we got the timing right. And I think the you know, it fit in New York at the time. There was yeah. a pent up amount of interest and energy in this model. And um, that's how that happened. Yeah, I remember that. I think there was a invite day or something. The first one where maybe it was like a hundred finalists or something. And I remember going to that and um, it feeling like a, a meaningful moment for like the Gary New York Gary Vee was there at that thing? I think it was Gary Vee. I think Chris Dixon might have yep. also Gary, spoken. Yep, totally. Um, and that... Uh, that felt like a good moment where it was, you know, I think a, a lot of people from these big, bigger companies, maybe like KGB, that felt like you did, that had left, that wanted to do startups and didn't really know where to go or or what community to access. Yeah, I um, uh, and and it was it was new for me too. Like I'd never done it, so I was running this first. Right? Were program. you nervous? Oh, totally yeah, petrified. Yeah. yeah um. Yeah. Yeah, but we. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think worked and what do you think didn't work about TechStars over over the next number of years? Because you guys backed some, what are now pretty big New York companies, right? ClassPass um, yeah, so came out of that. What else? Um, so Time Hop, and Time Hop, yeah, Contently, yep, yep. Um, and you know PopTip, which sold yeah, uh, yeah. Palantir. So there was yeah. a, a pretty good cohort of companies. Yep. The um, 
what worked, I think we got timing right. I think we recruited uh, an amazing group of founders who built a, a small community. And I think those founders are still in touch. You've seen sort of recycling of some of the teams where one founder from one team and another founder from another team start a new company. Right. So you've seen uh, great things. You know, Irving Fain from Bowery yep. was in our first batch and yep. uh, Ellie Portnoy from Think Near, which yep. is now uh, a new company since 360. Yep. These are founders who are on their second, third companies that we were able to um, really get off the ground here, which was amazing. So I think we built an awesome community. What didn't work? Um, I think the accelerator word got really tired. And I think the product itself is just hard to keep that same energy, yeah. whether it's depending upon mentors to keep the energy investor interest. You know, when we when I started it, there were a handful of accelerators around the country. And I think when I left Techstars, there were upwards of 500. Yeah. And so the model had just been sort of distributed so significantly that I think it was hard to differentiate. And then, you know, the, the battle of the accelerator model in general, it, and the question I would always ask myself is, is this model geared at attracting the best founders. Right. And I think the best founders, because entrepreneurialism and starting a company is a, a re natural rebellion. You are saying to the world, I know how to do something better than anybody else, or I have an idea that nobody else has, and I'm going to do it. And then to opt into a structure or a camp or a boot camp or a school mm. feels like a, mm. a sort of hedging of that bet. Mm. And that was always a tension that I don't know that the model yeah. attracted the true rebels. Right, right. Because to a certain degree, there's like, like it, it, it's almost an oxymoron, like the rebels that also want the credential Correct. of an, of an accelerator, right? Um, what were some of the first angel investments you made around that time? So um, I'd, I'd invested in previous to Texas, a company called Boxy, a company called Flavors.me. Right. right. Um, and then- I remember Flavors, website builder. Website builder. Yeah. And then right before uh, Texas, I invested in a company called ID.me. Okay. Uh, that's what it's called today. It was called TroopSwap back then, which is this awesome under the radar company in uh, mm. Washington, D.C., mm. ex-Navy SEAL uh, or Army Special Forces uh, Ranger who um, started basically as Craigslist for the military. Wow. And today it's a ID verification system. Um, that works with both the military and beyond. Uh, and he's this amazing entrepreneurial story. Uh, and then uh, I think the, the next investment I made was a company called GroupMe, which right. today is still a top 100 app in the app store. You go to a college and you ask how many people use GroupMe and it's 100% yeah. the room. Yeah. Um, and GroupMe yeah. was my first exit as well. And so 18 months after I invested, um, GroupMe sold to Skype, which was selling to Microsoft at the yep. time yep. Um, and was yep. an amazing outcome. And I'm lucky enough to, to have back the, the two founders of GroupMe's next right. uh, company yeah. as well. My, my wife just went through business school. Everybody used GroupMe. I like hadn't seen it in a little while, but it was just like ubiquitous. Yeah, it's one of it's these products crazy. that post-acquisition has actually yeah. grown yeah. probably 100x, which yeah. is you know, uh, an amazing acquisition story of something that wasn't really, you know, talked about enough uh, and has really found yeah. sort of secondary success. That one and Venmo, I think, are the totally. two companies in New York that uh, if they had really given it a go, could have been could have been. Yeah, and I think, I think the investor appetite for funding those companies to get to scale was really challenging at that point. Yeah. But it was a, yeah. it was, it was a, big missed opportunity yeah. for investors to to work on those two. When did you start thinking about, uh, I mean, I'm forwarding, 
you know, fast forwarding a few years, but but when did you start take thinking about taking the work that you had done at Techstars and some of the angel investing and I guess bringing along your partner, Adam, and formalizing all that into Box Group? Yeah, so Box Group ramped up actually when I joined Techstars. So when I joined Techstars, I realized Techstars, my job there was to be an investor. And so if I was going to invest via Techstars, I should take my box group investing more yep. seriously as well. So um, that first year I was at Techstars 2010, I made 30 angel investments as oh, well. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, okay. In 2011, okay. similar number. So that's when it ramped up. And it was because being at Techstars, I was getting more deal flow and people knew yep. I was an investor. So I was able to invest outside of Techstars. So I did a bunch of investing outside of it and then- I also was able to follow on to some of my tech stars companies yep. as a personal investor. And so I did that as well. Um, so that's when it uh, got serious. Adam joined uh, tech stars actually uh, the first day uh, that we launched and he had left a, a real hedge fund job and sort of changed careers right. and changed course right. to, How did you to meet Adam. Um, I knew Adam's sister in college okay. and we had a mutual friend who okay. introduced us and Adam was trying to figure out next sort of, thing. You're like, yeah. And, yeah. and I said, Come join me. I don't know what this turns into, but figure it out. And um, first session of Techstars, he did sort of minimal involvement on my personal stuff. But by the second session, we had sort of fallen in, in love with each other. And I respected his opinions and how he was able to process business models and industries. And his interests were quite different than mine. And so we found a, mm. a good way to collaborate. And I brought him heavily into what I was doing. And by the time we left, it was like, right. we've got to leave together and, and do this. Right. What are the differences between you and Adam? Like, what, what are the maybe the the things that he likes that you don't you and you like that he doesn't you know it, in every part you've worked together for what almost 10 years 10 years now wow. yeah um you know in every or eight years eight eight and a half Alex years. and I um, too by the way yeah it's a long time the uh every partnership model and every sort of partnership in life will have similarities and differences I think we have a appreciation for people in a very similar way we have yeah. a, a good collaboration on how we read and understand people i think are and by people what are you reading when you're thinking about investment you're sort of horsepower determination hunger um strategy um sort of every integrity founder, yeah every yeah, founder yeah. when they're pitching you is is not lying but they're making stuff up right they're they're projecting the future and so we have an ability your job as an investor is how much do you believe this person is capable of doing what they're telling you they're going to do and i think we have a similar way of evaluating a lot of that mm -hmm. um on the flip side i think our personal interests are totally different we at box group now we're probably 20 to 30 percent healthcare investing that's adam um Almost yep. exclusively, I had no personal interest in doing that. Adam yeah. had a deep one. Yeah. So we went down that path. And, and it's now awesome. Nimi. Yep. And right. now Nimi, yeah. who's our other partner who yeah. joined us. And, um, you know, her and, her and Adam spent a lot of their time thinking about healthcare. Adam was personally interested in fintech. I was interested, but Adam was more interested. So I let him sort of run with that because that was his interest. I love consumer. Adam doesn't love consumer as much. So I spent a lot of my time thinking yeah. about that. So from a sectors that we think about, there's a lot of differences, but how we evaluate investments is really similar. And I think that's the magic of the partnership is that we have a, a great way of getting to a decision together, even though at the sort of subject matter might not be of interest to both of us. Yep. How do you guys deal with conflict? either maybe on a deal or like, you know, 
uh, we, we have, um, hey, I didn't like how you handled that thing. Yeah, we're, or, we're, we're good at it now. So we're, yeah. we know we'll have about two a year. Um, okay. And so when we sort of see one coming, we both look at you like, this is one of our, okay. our conflicts this okay. year. And yeah. Says, let's, let's suss it out. <laughs> let's and talk so, about it. Yeah. Right. Uh, I call it our cold war yeah. because normally there's like a, a period ahead of it where you can sense a little tension and then you yeah. go solve it. But that's how yeah. sort of all relationships work, where yeah. if you feel tension, you got to get ahead of it. And I think as we expanded our team and as Nimi joined us as a partner, it was important to have that dynamic play through everybody. So if there's tension between Adam and Nimi or me and Nimi or vice versa, we all have to figure out how we're going to get to it. Um, in terms of deals, I don't. we don't believe in group think. So somebody who's passionate and has conviction on wanting to do an investment, we should do it because yep. um, we all trust each other to be good at what we do. So if Nimi comes to the table and says, I want to do this deal, and we're sort of like, we ask, we ask critical questions. Sure. And if there's conviction she should do the deal, yeah. even if I don't yeah. love it or yeah. Adam doesn't love it. And yeah. same thing with me. I, you know, I bring nonsense to the table during our deal meetings for consumers hard and you bring things that yeah. don't necessarily make <laughs> right. sense. And, right. you know, they'll stare at me like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And, but if, if I have conviction, our, our goal shouldn't be to talk each other out of deals. Our goal should be to help us find conviction. And I think that that's the framework that's mm -hmm. the most important is as partners, we should be pushing each other to sort of hone in on our strengths, not um, sort of posture or mm -hmm. fight. Mm -hmm. At what point? Well, I'm curious to two, two related questions. One is at what point did you feel like you were starting to get the hang of it? And then two is what are some of the major learnings and mistakes that you try to avoid today that you had seen yourself do maybe 10 years ago when you were first starting to make your angel investments? You know, this this industry is one of the, it's, it's fascinating because the time horizons in investing in early stage tech companies is forever. You have basically somewhere between a seven and a 10 year time horizon to find out if you were right. Mm -hmm. and how right you were. Mm -hmm. So how do you learn from that? And so I think, you know, not being humble, but being honest, like, I don't know if I'm good at this and I have no idea what I'm doing. I know that- Still? You still yeah, feel like that? Yeah, I really do. Every really? Day. And and you go through waves where you get a little more confident and you're like, I think I got, right. I think I got a beat on like this. Like you look at the list on the boxgroup.com site and you and look some at the companies. Some days and like, you look and some, you're like, there's some freaking good yeah. companies. And then there. other days you look and you're like, I can't see any good. And and that's the wave of, mm. of investing where you have to develop internal confidence on a regular basis to say, I'm going to make a good decision. I made good decisions and I know what I'm doing. But you, you sort of moments in time can affect you. We were one of the earliest investors in fab.com, which went all the way up and then all the way down. And so for the two years as fab was going up, you're basing a lot of your decision-making on fab being a great decision. Mm. And then mm. as fab collapses, mm. that sort of makes you look at all those decisions you made on the way up to say like, right. well, man, did I use the wrong logic to make those decisions? But in reality, some of those were great decisions. And then on the way down, you get nervous because you're like, anything that goes up can also come down. Right. So these lessons take a long time to play out. And I think, you know, what have I learned like if, what are one one or two things you know, that you hear obvious this here? Like right, I'm you never gonna freaking make that mistake again. Um over indexing on um 
early anything, right? I think companies take years to build. And so if you are too, um, almost too positive, if you take what you see at the very earliest stage and you just draw a line up and to the right, that's never how it works, obviously. But I think that's really hard to understand. So early traction doesn't mean Mm. further traction or early great hires don't always mean more great hires. You have to really, I think more than anything, spend a lot of time with a founder understanding what their vision is, not today and not year one, but it's year three, year five, and how they want to build a company. They have an appreciation for the the broad difficulties ahead. So is this company going to be capital intensive? If so, does the founder appreciate that one of their main jobs is fundraising? So if you have a company that's going to need to raise you know, $100, $200 million over the life cycle of that company, and the founder walks in and goes, I hate fundraising. It's not that you immediately say no, but you have to push that founder on something that's going to happen years later. The, the most important thing I think I've learned and the hardest one that I don't know that I have a system for figuring out is determination and sort of hunger, like the ability to get through the troughs as a founder. Yeah. That's the number one mm. determinant of success mm. because you have to power through them and not just power through them, but get through them and then keep going up with the same level of intensity. And that takes a lot because it, those troughs are hard. And so in a hour meeting with a founder on day one, when it's just two, three, four people on a team, yeah. how do you suss out determination? And that's yeah. something that I really want to figure out. And the other one is leadership. Mm. More now than I ever have before. When I'm talking to a founder, I'm imagining that founder standing in front of yeah. their company at 100 people and saying, how are they at, at doing their all hands? And how are they at retaining? Are those 100 people that work for them amazing because they are amazing at motivating amazing people to work for them? So that's something that I never used to do that immediately when I meet a founder, I, I try to project. And it's, I think it's impossible to project you know, a founder change or something. You have to just play out what's in front of you. Um, so I think a lot further ahead now than ever before. Right. One of the huge mistakes I think we make still to this day at Box Group is thinking we understand a market and not just sort of um, closing our eyes on a market and and using our imagination to get there. Mm. So we've the the deals that mm. we've passed on that were big mistakes. Mm. We got cocky about our understanding of a market and we were totally wrong. And so I try very mm. hard not to pretend I know more about a market than uh, sort of- Are we a, talking a, about Are we talking about uh, new markets? Any market. Because like to a certain degree, you you, you want to do a little bit of diligence just to, un right? I mean, you tell me I'm wrong, but like- Probably not. Just, really? I don't think so. Really? Like just You're to say like, look, here's the addressable revenue- more so like, is this a big market binary? Yes or no? Okay. Can this be a big market binary? Yes or no? Okay. If it's a yes each time versus a nuance. Well, a yes to path. one of those at least. Yeah, it has right. to be big. And that's sort of it. Um, right. Because every market, new entrants can come along and become real players in them, no matter what the market is. 
the how you get there again is on the founder to build a company and strategically navigate within that market. So I think being afraid of certain markets makes no sense if you love a team or if you love sort of the idea or the way they're right. thinking about something that's worth backing, not my analysis of a market to determine there's no opportunity or there's too small of an opportunity. If a market's big enough, a great team will figure out how to win in that market. What if like literally the addressable revenue is just small? That's That doesn't address the, is this a big enough market? And certain times it can be, it's not today, but it can be. If you can't say it's big enough today and it cannot be big enough tomorrow, you probably, you can look and say, this is an interesting idea, an interesting sure. opportunity. It's not venture scalable sure. or sure. scalable enough for us. Um what what is Box Group? That's a that's an existential question. <laughs> I think about every night. What is Box Group? Like, how how do you describe it today? I mean, it's obviously a b- way beyond. We are just boutique, your angel business. We are a boutique seed firm. Boutique seed firm. Um, we are technically angel investors, and okay. in that we don't have LPs. Okay. Um, but we try to sort of be the best of both worlds in that we act like an angel in many ways, but we want to uh, view ourselves sort of in the market of a seat stage firm. So we try to measure ourselves and analyze what we do compared to a uh, more traditional seat stage firm. And does that mean you're breaking out like funds. discrete funds? Yes, you are. So every three years okay. is a separate fund Got and it. we try to mark ourselves to Got perform it. against the industry. So we're trying to evaluate our performance like that. And then I think founders get confused when you're not, a fund. So we try to sort of look like a fund when we need to, but explain very transparently how we operate a little differently, which is, you know, we're a hundred percent pro founder. It's something that like a lot of people say, but we, it's, it's our money and we invest in the founder's company. So we don't report to investors. We Mm -hmm. don't have to sort of meet somebody else's expectations. Mm -hmm. So it allows us to align ourselves with the founders. And to me, I'm not in the business of satisfying other VCs. And so if I find a founder in a conflict with a VC, I want the founder to view me as their ally to come help them. What would be an example? I'm just trying to think of like a concrete example where, um, I, I know been VCs in, would maybe act differently because they have LPs versus box group that doesn't have LPs. I don't, I don't know that there's a discrete sort of set of things. I think it's again, just positioning yourself as friend. We're an early stage investor. We don't buy enough of a company. We don't sit on a board yeah. to materially impact the company's cap table. And so I want to view ourselves from a founder's perspective as we're there for the bad phone calls. If you are struggling mm-hmm. and you need help, call us and we're just going to give you non-incentivized advice because we have a scaled portfolio. So you, we are not dependent upon your company and we aren't dependent upon sort of uh, a fund in a specific performance. Sure. So I think it's just trying to position yourself as a friend of the founder, which is how angel investors tend to behave towards founders. And I think that's more what I'm getting at yeah. is yeah. how do you, how does a founder view their angels? That's how we would like to be viewed. Yeah. Um, will you raise outside funds? I don't know. I, what would we be think the, about would, it every year. You do? Yeah, we have a retreat every year. And okay. it's, it's typically like number one topic is, are we satisfied with what we're doing? And do we want to do something different? And what would be the reason to do, to to raise an out uh, to raise 
a fun with LPs there's versus There's probably one. two reasons. Okay. One is we can't do what we want to do. So if we want to write bigger checks and we can't do that internally, if we want to write more checks and we can't do that internally, if we want to write more follow-on checks or maintain uh, ownership and yep. we can't do that internally, yep. some amount of money. And the second is retention of talent. Can we? Can I personally or can we as a, a team incentivize everybody mm. to stay here right. and build their career here and not jump somewhere else where there's a bigger financial opportunity for them? So I think right. those are the two reasons why we would. Um there are plenty of reasons why we wouldn't, which I think are one being just what you just mentioned, yes. obviously. Yeah, and what I think, would the other I think ones there's be? an I mean, administ- dealing with right, fundraising. An, right. Yeah. Today, a hundred percent of our time is spent yep. either finding and, and sort of making new investments or working with our portfolio. When you raise outside money, there's a third bucket that comes in there. And yep. I, I think the hardest part for me has always been is the timelines to raise new funds as a VC versus the timelines of your investing. So we invest and we say we're in it for the long run and we know it's going to take five to 10 years. But if I have to raise a new fund every two to three years, what I'm looking for is two to three years of momentum in my portfolio to raise that fund on. So in reality, I'm investing theoretically for something that's 10 years away, but I expect and want quick success to be able to market for my new fund. That's a real hard thing. And I think as, as a VC matures, they're less dependent upon right. that quick result. Right. But I think early on to prove that track record, you're really dependent upon breakout success. And that's a, that's a breakdown to me of the timeline alignment. Yeah. Yeah. There are uh, lots of situations in which I find VCs, I mean, including ourselves making what you would, what the average person would view as kind of bizarre financial decisions short-term decisions short-term decisions right versus right. long-term right. and our business is is so long-term that i really would hate to to have to think short-term because we don't so we've never sold secondary in a company in order to generate sure. a specific sort of return and things like that so i just don't want to compromise our true view of of long-term sure um so you mentioned selling secondaries uh, and and not doing it because you felt pressure to do it, but um, this might be anecdotal, but I'm but I feel like lately I've heard more and more. I mean, partly because people are looking for liquidity. Yeah, I, I've heard the the idea of selling secondaries more often in the last couple totally. of years than you know five to seven years because ago. There's- the biggest mistake, and not even through the lens of like I don't like this company, right. screw just this I, company. I just like answer. hey, and, and or or at least I should be taking some yep. money off the table for some of the companies that are doing really. I well. I think there's two things that are going on. One is the timeline to IPO or or right. scale is right. longer. Right? right, companies are staying private longer. I think that's an aberration because those are few and far between, and those are the best companies that sort of get put on those pedestals and shown. I think the real. I don't want to say mistake, but miscalibration that I've had for 10 years is the amount of M&A. And I think if you look, um, it's declined and there's less early stage companies being bought for nice multiples. And it's mainly because the new growth companies in tech have bought less companies on their way up than Google and Facebook and other companies did where they were buying, you know, 50, 100 companies on the way up with equity. Twitter is another example. 
you know, Snapchat, Pinterest, Uber bought a handful of companies. Yeah. And so yeah. they didn't buy as many companies. And then additionally, the big thesis that I, and I think you see it here and there, but it's not happened as much are non-tech companies buying tech companies to uh, sort of turn into tech companies. That only happens to me at real scale or at sort of very small cap. The re reasons to me it, it isn't happening are public non-tech companies are judged so much quarter by quarter that they can't take that risk, that R&D right. risk. And on the flip side, you know, what they'll explain is tech valuations are insane, so they can't pay the expectations of startup founders. Both are probably somewhat uh, right as to why it's happening, but I think it really affects the timelines of seed stage investing. Do you guys look to take money off the table? We have not. Why we not? think about it also at a, a retreat topic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I mean, there's, because I mean, there's I, companies that you invested in a long time ago that are valued scale, way higher yeah. than they are today than they were, yep. you know, then. Um, no, it's, it seems to me like just a, I mean, obviously the mechanics of this are difficult to do and difficult to approach with the founders and all that, but, but it just seems to me like uh, it would be somewhat rational financial decision to make, to take totally some of the money rational. off the table. <laughs> now on the irrational side, yeah. I'm still learning and I want to see this whole thing play out once. Okay. So I had always, when I started this, I said, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it for a cycle before I know what I'm doing. And a cycle is somewhere between like what used to be seven years. Now it's 10, probably 15 10, years. 15 yeah. years. Yeah. I'm 10 years in. Yeah. So I'm maybe beginning to learn, but I need to see, you know, our companies, companies that we invested in in 2009, 10, 11, yeah. that are still alive today. How do they end? And, you know, are they ending better than they are on paper today? Worse. And I just want to see what that looks like in sort of a natural uh, evolution versus a forced evolution. You're letting it ride. Love yeah. It. All in. <laughs> Fuck it. Let yeah. it ride. Um, what uh, what do you think makes a great VC? You know, the, and 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 who do you maybe um, look up to either in the New York or the or the West Coast ecosystems as you've learned over the last decade? I think there's um, I don't know what makes a great VC because I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I think empathy makes a great. So there's like three parts to VC to me. One is like finding a deal. Yep. Two is choosing to do a deal, and three is being able to do that deal, and then four is the theoretical value add thing that whatever, you right. that they Which all you don't claim. believe in. No, I want to talk um, about that. We'll get there. Yeah. So, um, I think empathy for a founder situation is a really important thing, and I think the best VCs have an empathy for um, the difficulty on the other side and how yeah. a founder has a one of one bet and a VC has a portfolio, and so the second you lose. Um, touch with the fact that a founder is all in and a founder is bleeding and and crying for this company every day, I think you're not going to be very good at this business. Um, yeah. So I think there's an a EQ side of this business that is vital. On the flip side, I think the, the VC who's able to find and see the best deals, that's the ones that's the hardest part of this is seeing the best companies. And because though, I feel like everybody sees it. No, the best companies, I feel like nobody sees other than the best VCs. I think they're, they never come downstream. I feel like mm. way downstream from Sequoia mm. or mm. Benchmark or Union Square Ventures where they're seeing things that I don't see mm. because if I'm a, if I'm a great entrepreneur, how do I rationalize not going to them before coming to me? 
You mm-hmm. go to the best. And so I think they get first shot at everything. Right. And then if they don't do it, I get a, maybe a shot or I get really lucky and find something before them. Yep. And that's hard. And we're at a slightly different stage. We're earlier. So right. there's an outside shot. We'll be able to do that. But right. don't I, I don't underestimate um, how much those those great VCs see mm. versus what we see. Mm. Um, Who's great? Um, you know, I, I'm not a big... I don't, I don't sort of idolize people or, or put people on major pedestals. I'm inspired by a lot of the work, you know, that Josh Koppelman has done at first round. I think the, the firm that they've built is unique and, yeah. um, it's, it's totally when a, when an early stage company comes to me and says, who should we raise money from? Who's different? I think most people at the seed stage offer the exact same product. I think first round's totally different. They actually have a product and they have a product that if you talk to their portfolio, people value. And so I think he's done an amazing job thinking about uh, how to scale that firm and bring on amazing talent uh, alongside of him to make investments. So if you look at their partnership, it's incredibly impressive. Um, and the way that they've built that firm is awesome. You know, so they, I think I think on the flip side, yeah. You know, a solo practitioner in many ways, which Shanna Fisher yeah. has done is totally unique. I have no idea how to compete with her. She sees things that nobody sees. She makes incredible investments at the earliest moments in incredible founders. And she's mostly always right. So I have an incredible admiration for the work that she's done. Um, I think it's so good. Incredible. And I can't, yeah, I she, can't, you can't, I you can't just, beat her. You can't, um, fig- and you no, can't, you can't figure out how she does it. it out. And then, yeah. you know, out West, um, you know, again, yeah, at the seed stage, so. I think what Kirsten Green is doing at Forerunner is awesome. She took a theme and really uh, got into the best companies in that theme and continues to to do it in an yeah. incredibly impressive way, where, again, you talk to portfolio companies that work with her, and they're in love with the the work that Forerunner's done with them. So um, big sort of admiration for them. Um you know, there's a lot of, at Box Group, we work with, and, and I hate sort of singling people out. I just, we work with almost everybody and we yeah. do it yeah. um, hopefully collaboratively without yeah. sharp elbows. We and do. we do it because uh, we have a respect for what other people are doing as well. So that's how I view that. Um, New York. Uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that in one sec. I want to, I want to just touch on the value add thing. Because, sure. because first round is maybe one of the few firms would you agree that that does add some value yes. post investment yep so I'll, I'll 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 define what i mean by i don't i we pitch ourselves at box group and my partners don't always agree but i i say we we add no value we will do nothing for you we'll give you money you'll <laughs> I give think us you're giving yourself a hard time when you, you actually say you that. we will give you money you'll give right. us equity and we will root for you Mainly because I think I'm in a services business. I don't think we have a product. I don't think venture capital is a product. I think it's a cottage industry with, it's a bespoke service in that every founder is different and every founder is going to need different things and more sort of nuance, every founder is going to view you differently than every other founder will in the sense of if a founder has an investor on their cap table, that's their friend. That's not the role that they need me to play. Mm-hmm. If an investor, you know, if, if they have a lead, they surely don't need us to act like a lead. We mm-hmm. also don't lead rounds. We don't sit on boards. Mm-hmm. So I think our promise is very different than investors who are buying 15, 20% of a company, taking a board seat and taking real ownership. So what's my job? My job is to service entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. I don't have a specific value add. I instead respond to what I'm asked to do. What I do is whatever I'm asked to do, and I will try hard to do that. 
So can we do everything that we're asked to do? Hopefully, but I don't know what I'm going to be asked to do. So I hate explaining what our value add is because right. what it is, is right. whatever you ask me, I'm going to try to do. So you should view me as <laughs> right. a, a person that you should use to do things for yeah. you. And yeah. I'll try to do that. Making introductions, which is the main thing that a lot of early stage investors pitch themselves on being great at, that is eight seconds of my day. It's sending an email. Yeah. So if that is my magical value add and my magical product, shame on me for pedestaling that as this magic. Instead, I'm going to make introductions. We are great at helping companies raise money. We're great at helping companies strategize about how to raise money. But again, that's my job more than it's my value add. I think it's just the basics. you're, You're saying that, you know, when you enter into a deal with someone, an investment, an agreement, a partnership, not just between a startup and a VC, but in all different ways, yes. part of life. It's like the deal as a part of it is like you give someone money, they give you equity, and you're going to try to help each yes. other win. 100%. Period. Yes. And you don't need to package it Correct. into this whole so, so we don't, marketing value right, I don't add pitch. Thing. I don't right. pitch our value. Right. I want what I want as an entrepreneur to like us, not as necessarily humans, but like our ethos, how we approach our work and want to align with us. And on the flip side, we want to do the same. And that's that values, that's its integrity, the approach to company building. I want to believe in how they're thinking about it. And I want to be able to support them however they're doing it. So what does that turn into? It turns into every single one of our companies views us and interacts with us differently. And we as a firm need to be great at responding however we're asked to respond. Where I don't want to do is tell a founder how to do anything. They have enough challenges in building their company, of maintaining their team, of doing everything that they have to do, that if we are asking them to do one thing, Mm. we are making a mistake. Mm. Um, How do you think about that how do you think about your bit? Well, both both the the marketing of value add and competing against that. Yeah, I, right. For, I, for I a lot like, a lot of firms that market it, yeah, or, I don't or, like, And I would just say more broadly, like, how do you think about competing against a million different things I, that that VCs are now marketing, whether it's real or not? Like ten years later, you know, I don't love competing against other VCs for allocations and deals. It's my least favorite part of this job. Yeah. It's becoming more and more sort of every deal you're you're fighting right. because there's more right. investors and right. big funds come downstream right. and want allocations and they want more ownership in this. Right. Um you have to you have to win. You have to win over an entrepreneur. And you normally to me win over on two things. One is reputation and two is sort of a, an emotional connection hmm. with a founder or an intellectual, hmm. or whatever that is a connection with a founding team. Hmm. They want they, they have yeah. to want you. So yeah. if they have choices, they have to pick you. Yeah. So you have to give them enough for them to pick. So to me, where our value add pitch goes in is call any one of our companies and see if we're helpful. If they don't tell you yes, you should not take our money. If mm. they tell you that we're great, hopefully that, that translates to you too. And so that's my value add pitch is you tell me who you want to talk to in our portfolio or just reach out to anybody and check on us. If we're good, take our money. If not, don't. I like that. So if we don't live by our reputation, you shouldn't, like, I shouldn't be able to convince you in a 30-minute session that we're great. Right. I like the randomness of that, which is like, you know, because we get, I mean, I think a lot of founders rightly ask VCs for references, which they should do. They should call other founders. 
Um, I like the I like. But the don't let the VCs like literally pick. Call anybody. Yeah, don't let call the anybody. VCs pick. Right. My favorite tip to give to a founder is if you want to really diligence a VC, is ask them who the last three companies they deleted off their website is, and call those three. <laughs> That's awesome. Right. Or or the last few companies that failed. Not even failed because some VCs will right. delete. You know, right. a yeah, company yeah, yeah. that's in the portfolio. It's it's really the removing off the I website. Like yeah, I like because that. they're the ones that they don't sort of advertise for you to call. Right. What do you think of that activity? Of of removing, yeah. it's natural because you know at Boxer we would have way too many logos for you to sort right. through, and um, right. you're and less. There's no active, link. There's no right? link to the site anymore. Correct. There's no context around it. So and like, it's a moment in time right. that that company existed and maybe right. sold or didn't work, and right. so it's less interesting. Um, so I think it's just naturally how uh, businesses evolve. But there's other funds who probably do it in a more calculating way, right? Well, it's kind of interesting, right? Because VCs will obviously always keep the companies that successfully exited yes. on their website. For sure. <laughs> Way to tell. Right. That maybe didn't, you know, they slowly get removed. Um, so uh, last question. Um, 10 years later, New York City technology, where do you think we are compared to maybe 10 years ago? Good and bad. And, and, um, and uh, uh, you know, you, you're running... Um, and what's your title at Cornell? Head of uh, Startup Studio. Head of Startup Studio at Cornell, and you've played a big role in getting that spun up um, over in Roosevelt Island. Um, all those things together, kind of curious how you think about the ecosystem here today. So I think the biggest thing that's happened is, is 10 years ago, tech was a vertical. And it was a sort of a exception to everything else. You were either in the tech world or you were in other industries. Yep. I think the biggest shift that's happened is software ate the world and tech went from a vertical to horizontal. And so every single industry now is dependent or, yeah. or, or sort of being, I hate the word disruptive, innovated on whatever it is by technology. So you have, you know, and in New York, you have a lot of industries here that are old and established that are now being impacted by tech. And so in New York, you have a lot of companies that are, you know, healthcare slash tech or publishing slash tech, advertising slash tech, retail, fashion, sports, et cetera, education, they're all now impacted by tech. So I think the biggest thing is tech is no longer this sort of side thing or, or an opt-in, it's everywhere. And um, what that's done is, is both good and bad. I think it's um, good because it, it's expanded our industry and yeah. really made the, the pie bigger and sort of the opportunities we're, we're all investing in bigger. I think the negative, especially in New York, is there's less of a community because everybody's mm. sort of fragmented doing yeah. their work in whatever yeah. sub-industry or slash industry they're working in. So you see, le and it's a bigger group of people, so there's less of a, a community. I think there's not maybe a- under, Less of an underdog- yeah, mentality. nobody's rooting for yeah. tech anymore, yeah. Yeah. Um, especially given the political climate and yeah. sort of the the meta issues in tech. Um, nobody roots for tech startups. Being a startup isn't cool anymore. You know, the the media isn't championing the the story anymore. They're instead yeah. sort of unicorn hunting, and yeah. I don't think that that's um, it's it's not fun. So I don't think that's a good thing. Um, I think in a downturn, you know, and it cycles happen in a downturn, you'll see the that good side of it right. come back again and right. start to be cool one day again right. um, versus sort <laughs> of everywhere. But, it, um, you know, in New York, I think you have 
a lot of companies that are not, they don't look and feel like your traditional Silicon Valley tech startup, but they're making incredible impacts in their industries. And, you know, whether it's a WeWork or whether it's a Flatiron Health or it's a Warby Parker or, um, you know, in, in all of those industries I mentioned, you see Rent the Runway here, like incredible impact in their industry, yeah. yet not your traditional tech startup. And yeah. I think that these are important, innovative companies in New York that are rebuild, uh, that are building the sort of modern industry, tech industry in New York. Super awesome. I think, yeah. um, you know, where does this all lead to? I think it, it's a natural evolution of where tech has gone to, which is, you know, every business is in some way, shape and form a technology dependent company or a technology enabled company. Yep. And if you're not, I do think you will die. I think the yeah. pace of death is different in each industry and um, sort of how death happens is different. But I do believe that if you are not data, software, and sort of modern data software dependent and, and enabled and modern thinking in the way that you're evolving your company, you will be in trouble. And I think you're seeing that happen in, you know, fin in, in the financial world today. Goldman Sachs calls themselves a tech company and whether that's right. branding or yeah. not, yeah. Uh, Two Sigma, 500 developers building yeah. Two Sigma, that is a tech company. And yeah. so in, in each of these industries, you see technology companies rising up as sort of slower, more traditional companies, uh, fail um you got another 10 years in you i hope so yeah i don't yeah. have a plan yeah i think it's easier <laughs> when you i think yeah. i think you know as i said yeah. about our retreat we go we go away every year and we we take right. a look but the intention is i love i love working with early stage founders i don't want to do later stage i love this space i love people with ideas and dreams and it's you know the the best side of vc is you are enabling somebody to go and build their dream and to see it through. And it's a privilege, right? You yeah. get to you get to meet people who have goals and, and aspirations and dreamt of something and want to go build it. And if you can help them at all in that process, it's incredibly fulfilling. And it's incredibly uh, unique because you get to see something that was nothing. Um, and then, you know, years later, everyone you know knows that name yeah. or that company. Yeah. It's incredibly cool. Yeah. Um, awesome. So I, I love it. David, thank you so much. We really Nick, appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. 
If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glaue, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.